Welcome to 100 PM, episode 34. You're listening to 100 PM, the show where we're interviewing 100 expert product people from startups to enterprise and everything in between to bring you all the actionable advice you need to succeed in product management. Today, I'm talking to Shafiq Sharif, SVP of Consumer Product at ShopRunner. If you're joining us for the first time, be sure to visit our website, 100productmanagers.com, the web's fastest growing resource for product management topics, recommended resources, and online learning. I'm Susanna Bate, product coach, startup mentor, and host of today's show. Let's dive right in and say hello to Shafiq. Uh, my name is Shafiq Sharif. I'm the SVP of consumer product over here at ShopRunner. We've been around for for a while. We have a, a retailer network of 150 retailers uh, across Neiman Marcus, Saks, uh, Bergdorf, etc., and four and a half million members. And so my focus is really on the consumer product and how we evolve uh, our consumer value proposition for all of our retailers. You probably arrived at SVP naturally. You've been in this industry a long time, but you started as a developer. I did, yes. If you remember back in those days. <laughs> yeah, that takes me, uh, takes me a while back. Um, yeah, I mean, I remember thinking, um, getting into, into school, I always loved coding as a kid, and I began with my Commodore 64 and basic and, <laughs> uh, you know, in, in, in Africa, actually, when, where, where I grew up, and uh, just writing programs and trying to figure out what, what all, this, all that did, and just found I was, I was good at it, and I loved inventing. I think this was always kind of a core thread that's followed my life, where I've loved the idea of trying to create something out of nothing, and um, develop seemed like the right place to go and it was a very exciting time is a very exciting time uh, around everything happening in technology and I remember uh, I remember really thinking hard about wanting to learn how to make all these great things happen Java had just come out Java servlets the web was in the early days uh, I remember building things back then that would have been amazing if I'd pursued them through but never really got around uh, around to it um, but I remember really enjoying getting deep into technology and just figuring out where it could go and playing with what was possible so you started your career as a developer and then you kind of pivoted toward the, the, the sought-after consultant title. You have a technical consultancy sort of piece and then got into program management at Microsoft. It, presumably that's when the product management journey kind of officially began? That's right. Um, so I started off at Trilogy Software as a technical consultant, as, as you mentioned. Uh, very fancy, but it was really a lot of flying around and trying to, trying to do what the clients needed to do. But a good transition, though, from, taking, uh, from knowing my technology in depth to really thinking about the business problem, what the client wanted, which made, me, which made it the right time uh, to move into program management over at Microsoft. Talk to us about, because one of the things that we uh, surface a lot on this show is the path that people take into product management or the path that people in hindsight see led them into product management. And it is common for folks to start maybe as user experience designers or researchers, as marketing people. You don't see as many developers make the leap into the kind of more strategic center of product. And I'm curious if you can comment on that, either on behalf of developers everywhere or maybe just on your behalf of what allured you in. Yeah, I think, I think it all really starts off with the curiosity. Um, I've always had this sense of 
really trying to understand the context in which things fit, really understand the why. And I think what I wasn't content with just from a development perspective was just the technical challenge as opposed to the impact challenge and the why I was doing something. So I think if you have that sense and you're really, really interested in product management, there are paths, you have to work at it, you have to put yourself out there working potentially with your product manager in whatever or CEO in whatever context you're in to really set yourself up as the person, not just who's accepting what needs to get done, but being on the front lines of the consumer problem and, uh, and really trying to articulate what can be possible. Um, so I think that's sort of what a clear path that got me to make that, that particular transition. Um, I think otherwise from a, from a how to get into product management perspective or how to, how to you know, beat a path there, there are a few different ways that I've seen work depending on the stage of career that, that somebody's at. I've seen a lot of people take the MBA route um, at, at a good MBA school and sort of have that internship be really the key milestone that gives them that, that, that entry on, on the resume and that initial experience that makes that happen. Um, I've seen a lot of people from an operational background join a young and growing company. So at Groupon, I saw this happen a lot. I was at Groupon for a number of years and I saw a, a few folks who were really good at thinking analytically, thinking about the consumer, sort of start to become associated as a product specialist. So they'd work with their product managers in a deep way to bring in consumer feedback um, from either international, internal sales staff, customer service from the customers themselves, and really become used to this idea of developing requirements, working through a product backlog, thinking about metrics, and then slowly sort of getting a, a small APM position and then growing that into a full-fledged uh, product career. So I'd say those are at least a couple of ways I've seen people make very successful transitions into product management with the right skills. Uh, and foundation. Right. And and let me just frame up what I think that you're talking about, because, you know, I've had a, a guest uh, on the show talk about this. He, he was a, a hardware guy and, and he got into product just by being on the customer service side, loved it, knew a lot, showed up a lot in the meetings and the conversations. And I think that's what I'm hearing from you a little bit is if you're part of any team in a product company or organization, just showing up and taking interest in conversations that go beyond the scope of your job description is a good way to start to get noticed and start to get invited into more of those conversations. Is that right? Absolutely. I think product management, um, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners have, have sort of picked up over time, is an evolving discipline. And there's always room for help. So a product manager is so much on their plate, they can't possibly take care of everything. And so being involved in the conversations, like you mentioned, thinking about the why and almost proactively volunteering to either bring in feedback or aligning a roadmap or detailing in, 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 in some depth a particular area will always help you gain that credibility and then those skills required for, for, for the profession. So I know I keep pushing you back into your past and I, <laughs> I do want to talk about your present, but you know, Microsoft, it's a big company. And so here you are, you've pivoted away from you know, traditional developer role into program manager. And this comes up a lot. What is a program manager as opposed to a product manager? That's a, a really good question. Microsoft, what I loved about Microsoft is that it, I think, really initially spearheaded this idea of product management or what's grown into product management in the form of program management. I think if you read the literature, it really starts off with Excel and um, they brought in somebody to really focus on the Excel product and really make it usable from a consumer perspective and pull together all the different threads of all the different things that were happening from an engineering, the engineering side of the world. Um, and so they really began this idea of very technical product management, which is, which is in a sense, which 
which is which is which is how I think about program management itself. Um, and so, program management in my mind is really about pulling together a lot of the technology, thinking about a lot of the platforms and how they come together to solve a consumer problem. Now, at Microsoft, there was a very clear distinction between program management, which was translating a business idea into technology, and what they called pro product management, which was a little more of how we think about uh, product marketing. So, thinking about the market, who the consumers are, what direction the business was moving into. And I think more and more as I've progressed in my career, I've loved the idea of basically bringing those two pieces together. As I think both those in a single mind is what gets you true innovation. Because you start thinking about what can technology uniquely provide now that solves a business problem and or what new business problems are solvable by technology. And so as I've thought about how to structure teams, structure career paths, I've thought more about this idea of pulling together a single person who gets to know the technology as well as the business, um, and then bringing in more junior people underneath them who maybe start off with just the technology and then grow more into the business. And, you know, because this points to another commonly asked question, which is how technical do I need to be as a product manager? And I think you speak to it eloquently. There's this idea that some product managers skew heavily technical and that can serve them very well in the context of leading a product with a really high tech focus and where explaining the technology and the value of the technology or the innovation of the technology is fundamental to the growth of the product. And then sometimes I, I would imagine certainly in, in you know business to consumer context, knowing how to set up a funnel that works from start to finish, knowing how to integrate kind of acquisition techniques into the design of the product and, and the value propositioning is its own skill set. But I like hearing you talk about the importance of bringing those sides together. I recently had a student in my class, we were talking about marketing and sort of said, do we really have to know this as product managers? I think you're sort of saying yes. Absolutely. I, I the product manager has to wear so many different hats. I mean, the way I think about it is you're almost the CEO of this product doing whatever is needed to get it out the door. And so you have this jigsaw puzzle of a lot of other people whose skills you can rely on, but any skill you don't have, you kind of have to fill in or find a way um, to compensate for. From that perspective, being being very T-shaped is sort of a, a helpful thing. So having really good depth in one direction, whether it's technology or marketing or analytics, um, or thinking about how the market works, uh, consumer research, and then having a really good solid foundation in the other places is, I think, one of the more important pieces uh, to be able to really, really, really thrive as a product manager, which sets you up for continual learning because no one's born with all those pieces. And so you start off with what you're good at and then start to build in the other blocks that, that are important. Yeah, yeah. Hunger for knowledge is definitely on the list of, of qualities. So you leave Microsoft, you're, um, you're at Pelago. And Pelago gets acquired by Groupon in its very early days. I mean, this is a company Groupon would have been a little less than two years old. And then you go on to have multiple director level positions at Groupon for almost six years. Tell us about working at Groupon. How many employees when you started? It's hard to pin down exactly, strangely enough, only because we made a big international acquisition. And Groupon, as you guys probably know, is very heavy on the operations side of the world. So I think we probably had maybe about um, 5,000 and grew it eventually to 11,000. It was really strange for me because I came from a company at Pelago of 20 people where we were trying to find product market fit, competing with Foursquare in the check-in space. And you know everybody at the company. And I remember coming into Groupon and asking exactly that question. How many employees are at the company? And literally nobody could tell me because it was already so vast and so big. Wow. 
Um, but from year two to year six, it was just—it's just been a crazy ride, and uh, and I think enjoyed every every minute of it. What was? I mean, you also you moved into sort of different product functions during that time. What were some of the things that you were responsible for? Just kind of at a summary view of your career while you were there. Yeah, let's take a quick step back. We just talk just a little bit about Pelago. So Pelago was you know, coming out of Microsoft, focusing on a lot of platform product management. How do we build out the Xbox Points platform uh, to power what's happening at, at Microsoft and all the different Microsoft businesses? Businesses. Uh, Pelago was a really refreshing breath of air where walked into a startup really pre-product market fit in a lot of ways and really started to really learn the basics of thinking about consumers from a consumer perspective. So we, like I, was, like I mentioned, really started focusing on the on the location space and uh, and the check-in war. So we launched with Foursquare at South by Southwest on the same day. We focused more on storytelling and our purpose was to increase the possibility of human connection and adventure in your everyday life. And there I had a wonderful mentor, uh, this guy John Kim, who currently runs a, a lot of the product at HomeAway. Um, and our focus there was to really bring in consumers to understand what location meant. Would they be kind of comfortable sharing their location? Uh, why would they do that? Are they interested in seeing where their friends were on any given day, understanding what was there in their city? And we developed this really great value proposition that was about checking in, creating recommendations for people like you, um, having to see people to, uh, try the things that you're recommending and get, getting that social loop in place. Um, and that was a really phenomenal, I think, building block and, and learning experience around what it takes to really think about outside-in product management. So taking that to Groupon, um, jumping into Groupon, it was year two. There were there was a new clone coming up every day. It was called the Attack of the Clones, um, fastest growing business ever, and it was really a matter of survival. So at Groupon, the rhetoric at the time was uh, whether Groupon would survive at all because it was so easy to switch from one provider to the other. Uh, you had living, you had Living Social as the next big competitor. Amazon had gotten the game. Facebook, Google were all getting into the game. Um, and yeah, the real question was, would Groupon survive? And I remember thinking to myself at the time that Google kind of had the same problem. So back back in the day, for those of you who can remember it, there was Google versus AltaVista versus Inktomi, and <laughs> Google had exactly the same uh, question. Would, it be, would Google survive? Because there was so much competition, established search engines with big business relationships, but Google really thrived at the end of the, And it was even easier, actually, at the time to switch um, from Google to Inktomi. All you had to do was type in a very different search string into your URL bar. But Google really thrived because of the quality of the search results. And I remember coming to Groupon and thinking, that's what I want to do. I want to really focus the key value that I can provide here at Groupon is going to be, how do we get the right products, the right deals for the right customers at the right time? And that's kind of the, the secret to success. Right. Um, and that's really what I came in with and focused right at the outset at this idea of supply, demand, demand driven supply optimization. So we started to use um, a lot of the data we were collecting around what customers were buying, where they were buying it. So in Chicago, what is a Lincoln Park customer act like versus somebody who's out in the burbs? So what are they interested in? Do they have more massages, more nail salons, more pizza? Do they go skydiving more often? Do they do more beauty treatments versus somebody who lives in the burbs? And we'd use that data projected out forward, apply in seasonality. So our pumpkin, winter pumpkin patch is going to be big versus Santa photo shoots, right? right? And back out from that into when our sales team has to go approach the merchants. And then we took the full corpus of all the merchants that existed in the city, how good they were, what quality they were at, and married that into what a sales rep should go focus on calling in any particular time frame. So really focused on taking the data we had, the algorithms we had, um, to find the right deal for the right customer at the right time. First of all, I love everything about that, including the bewilderment of going from 20 people to 5,000 people uh, in between a weekend. But 
I'm fascinated thinking about the amount of research that you're sitting on top of in a scenario like the one that you described. Can you give us a picture, especially for folks listening that are still in a 20 or 30 or 40 person type organization, maybe they don't even have data scientists on the team. How do you coordinate that kind of qualitative and quantitative research, both the gathering of it and then the analysis of it at scale like that? Just like, what does that look like? It's uh, it's interesting in that it doesn't automatically happen on its own either. Okay. And so you really have to start shepherding it from, from scratch and really starting with the vision of what might be and then really, really backing that down into uh, very specifically the next thing you want to be able to build. What is the MVP? Uh, what is the customer scenario? What is the sales rep looking for next? Um, and validating that with, with, with our customers. And so it's really gratifying to be able to have the skill sets from a data science perspective, a data engineering perspective, a data collection perspective, to slowly start to get that to become more and more material. With so much data, it's really easy to get lost. It's really easy to start to focus on data for data's sake. Uh, it's really easy to sort of begin pursuing research in directions that don't yield anything. And so as, as, as a product manager in that scaled space, it's just as important in a 20-person company as, 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 as it is when you have um, hundreds of engineers and, and, and data scientists to really focus on thinking about what is that consumer problem I'm solving and then backing into that to get to the right data science research, the right data collection to be able to get to a result that's meaningful and defining what success means. And so we thought about success a lot as the lift um, you would see from a consumer engagement standpoint, consumer order perspective, from, from what they had currently to what the test is that you were getting out there um, and really thinking about how to make that happen, happen at scale. Any favorite, I know there are so many different ways uh, and we need to explore all the different ways to collect certainly qualitative customer feedback, right? So when you talk about keeping the customer in mind, remembering what is the problem that we're solving or what is the need that we're you know, fulfilling, what were some of the tactics that you and your team used just you know, as the company was powering through growth to go out and hear from customers about the right kind of offer, that sort of obsession that you had taken on yourself. So when we were at scale at Groupon, it really shifted from having sort of one-on-one qualitative measurement over to really using the data as a gauge. So we would try experiments all the time across the website, across the consumer experience, uh, and very much across the algorithms we end up putting into play. So um, a core part of what we ended up doing was the idea of champion challenger. So we'd always have uh, everything from what we called our, our smart deals engine to uh, the project I led quantum leaders around supply side, this idea of what the baseline algorithm was that was working uh, and that provided the current results. And then we start carving off traffic uh, onto the new ch- challenger algorithm. And as soon as we'd see in a sustained basis, the lift. And there's a lot that goes into it about how how you think about statistical significance, statistical power, how long you should run your your results for, how many tests you can run at the same time. Um, And as soon as you saw something provide substantial statistically supported lift over the prior algorithm, you'd make that the baseline and then start running other experiments with other hypotheses you had in place. Um, And so that became the primary method of collection. Um, What I did miss at Groupon, to be honest, which is what I did a lot of Pelago, was the very qualitative one-on-one customer feedback that that we've started to bring in here uh, at ShopRunner. So just last week, uh, we had um, eight different customers across different segments come in. And what I think you get from that is a very different sense of 
the needs and wants and internal desires of a customer that you really can get from the data. And that is very valuable when you're thinking about new hypotheses, new product directions you want to be able to move into versus the data-driven approach, which is really, really handy when you're in a place where the core product is understood, you have product market fit, and you're focusing more on optimization. Right. Yeah, This. so this idea of leveraging customers for feedback is an interesting one, I think, in that it parallels what you spoke about earlier, which is if you're an employee of a company that wants to get more involved in product, show some interest, participate in discussions, and you'll be invited into the room. And I I do think that there's an impression for a lot of people that customers don't want to be in the room and in the conversation. But that's not true, right? You have people that are willingly coming here just for what? What what motivates them, in your opinion, to want to participate at this qualitative level? Everyone really, I think, wants to be heard. Um, everyone has an opinion and they want to feel like their opinions are valued and they matter. And once you have customers of your product, uh, you'll have the range. You'll have the ones who are really passionate about your product, the ones who are using it because it's just what they do, um, and, uh, and and the ones who you know may have tried it once and, and, and gone away. But all of those classes of customers are going to be really engaged and wanting to give you their two cents uh, because they have spent their time and energy engaging with your product. Um, and they want to be able to give you that, 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 that direct feedback about, about what matters. Um, what I find about consumer feedback is it's really interesting. It's the thing that everyone knows you should do, but there's this weird internal resistance sometimes to really wanting to go and source and, and, and bring it in. And I think that's because we're all afraid of being wrong. Um, we're all afraid of our ideas not really standing the test of what's real out there. And if you read um, a lot of these sort of failed startup stories, you almost consistently get this idea of, we wish we'd shipped something earlier, we had something out there that nobody really wanted, but we thought was really great. We asked consumers and they all agreed with us, um, and then we realized it was wrong. And there's sort of an art to the kind of feedback you get. But I'd say as a product, as a product manager, as a product leader, your primary responsibility to the organization is that you get out there and make that hard choice to get out there and bring the consumers. And it's almost like exercising. You know, you should get out there and you know run your X miles every day or go to the gym Y times a week. Um, and it's really hard to do, but you know, the, the, at, the, at the end of the day, it's gonna be a great thing. As you talk to consumers, you talk to one at a time or bring them in or run your surveys, on a daily basis, you won't feel the impact, but it'll change the vocabulary that you use inside the, inside the organization. It'll give you conviction about your hypotheses in a way that you never thought you had before. And ultimately, you'll find yourself just making a lot of implicit decisions. You'll find your organization making a lot of implicit decisions that are the right actions for your consumers, which then lead to consumer value and lead to value that you can capture. So I'd say, yeah, there's really no substitutes. Uh, for really, you know, making that step, no matter how hard it feels like at the time, to start to bring consumers into 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 your process. Yeah, I mean, candidly, I've failed multiple times from that exact reason, and I think this also speaks to the fact that even though we as product people, seasoned product people, know what we need to do, it shows how easy it is to kind of relapse into the wrong behavior, right? Or or overcomplicated. You know, certainly the more you know how to design product, the more you know how to build product, the more likely you are to spend time going straight to solution without stopping to say, wait a minute, is this the right solution? In a way, if you've never done it, 
you have an advantage because you have to learn everything anyway. Like how does software get designed? How does it get built? What's the right order? Who are the right partners? But the more you close those gaps, the more you can, you know, close your eyes, think of a problem. And then later that afternoon, have a working prototype, which tends to skip over that customer research piece that we're talking about. And, you know, the, the expression that I like is embracing a mindset of maybe, you know, maybe this is a good product, but maybe not. Let's go see. And you do have to be okay with getting told no, which is easier if you come from maybe than I know. Exactly. I love the idea of just options. Like the word that always comes to mind is the idea of options, right? I think that to me is one of the, one of the defining things that lets your organization be one that is a learning organization uh, versus one that thinks it has all the answers and has only one shot really at a win or a loss. Um, and so I love the idea of thinking about the customer and framing out what the problem space is, what the need space is, and then leaving that open to ideation around what solutions will be able to fit that particular that particular question. And then once you have once you have a number of different uh, once you have a number of different types of solutions, you can then think about what is the MVP for each of the solutions that we can test out. What are the hypotheses we have, um, and how do we start to use those hypotheses to chart a part forward and to really accelerate the learning of the organization? Talk to us about ShopRunner. Uh, that's where you are now for folks listening who maybe haven't heard of it. It's also, it's a startup, right? Is that fair to say? Absolutely. We're definitely in the startup stages, uh, thinking about how we start to build out our, our next consumer value proposition. So ShopRunner has been around for some years. We've built out a retailer network, like I mentioned before, of 150 retailers. So we have retailers of all shapes and sizes, everything from Neiman Marcus, Saks, Bloomingdale's, uh, Express, Bonobos, over to Theory, and a number of really, really small boutique designers that, that exist in our network um, and on the consumer side we have four and a half million members and uh, members pay $80 a year uh, to get free two-day shipping across our full network of retailers so what we do effectively is this idea of bring in uh, is, is, is make it really fast and easy to shop at these retailers and when we do that we get a couple of different effects one is Customers start to think more and more only about shopping within the network because they have the superpower of free two-day shipping. And the second thing they start to do is they start to really look, they really start to buy more because they're able to get the free two-day shipping. We also have free returns, uh, which I didn't mention before, which is actually on par with free shipping because it removes a lot of the risk of buying online. And so you have customers who actively source our product in our networks because they get the, the free shipping, free returns, uh, and then they tend to buy more often because the risk is reduced and keep more product because they tend to, tend to find that they're able to experiment more with trying out new things and then keep things that they really like. So one of the things that is, I guess, a pattern of your career, or at least sort of the last decade of it, is this B2B to see component to your product management role. So it's kind of, it's really sort of beautiful, at least as we framed it up in this conversation, because you started at Microsoft where the two worlds were separate and then you went on to work in companies where that integration was not just a part of your day-to-day, -day, but sort of essential to the business model. And I want to talk about, uh, or I want to hear from you about how this shapes the work, because in ShopRunner and in Groupon, one side of it is we have all of these vendor partners, right? The, the, the B2B side. How do we uh, create value for our retailers, as an example? And then there's the B2C side, which is how do we make sure that all these strategic partnerships we're leveraging over on the B2B side actually translate to one or several compelling value propositions for the consumer? So 
I know that I'm not really framing it in any specific question, but I just love for you to talk a little bit about what that looks like as a product manager in that space. That's a really good observation because you're right. At Microsoft, it was definitely more B2B. We're building platforms inside for the Microsoft businesses. At Pelago, uh, really focused purely on consumer. What is the consumer value prop of sharing location? And I think what's happened since then at both Groupon and now at Shropburner is really a real focus on marketplaces. Uh, marketplaces are really, really interesting beasts. I guess I really like them because they're probably twice as complex as any other business, as if any business was, was, wasn't uh, complex enough. Uh, but I love thinking about value because and the transfer of value from uh, one party to the other and how we can facilitate that. So marketplaces have been really interesting because we really had to focus A on the supply side. And it's really helpful in the marketplace to think about supply and then demand as opposed to uh, really uh, mixing up the two. So at Groupon as an example, when I was focusing on how do we bring in the right merchants, um, how do we bring in the right density of merchants in a particular area, it was very much supply driven. Um, and at Groupon, the man transferred over to Groupon Goods, uh, where I headed product across logistics, merchant, and the consumer experience. You really start thinking holistically about what is the value you give the merchant and how do you build up the merchant funnel? How do you bring up merchant density? How do you get to the point where you have enough product in all the different categories you want at the right density that consumers will now change their behavior and think about your marketplace as the destination to be able to conduct transactions in. And I think what's really interesting about marketplaces on the consumer side of the world then is you need to become this very trusted layer on top of a fragmented base of supply. And that's where the marketplaces work really best, uh, work best, where you have fragmented supply, where you have everyone who wants to offer a service and you become a place that can give them very quick demand and make it really easy to provide supply into that marketplace. And on the consumer side, you're able to take a lot of the fragmented demand and really provide a layer of trust and assurance, returns, feedback, convenience, where they can come to one place and shop across a range of other merchants. Um, so yeah, product management, I think, is twice as complex. You really, you really have to think about the funnel on the merchant side and, and, and building that up first, um, and, then, and then start to get the flywheel spinning to get the consumer side to increasingly trust the, the marketplace and to see that, they, that they, they have the supply that you need. What I think about a lot there is this idea of, of almost um, building a fire using a chimney. So if you're if you're ever barbecued with a, with a charcoal fire before, um, you can't just, you know, throw a match into the charcoal and hope it'll catch. You really have to focus on aggregating a lot of coal into one small area, pulling kind of a device called a chimney that makes things super, super hot in a very small area. And then as that starts to catch, you can then start to expand that fire and have it grow. You saw the same thing happen at Facebook, where Facebook focused on college campuses. Uh, Tinder did a very, very similar thing, kind of fo focusing on college campuses. If you read about a lot, a lot of what happened in Uber, um, you, you learn that they kind of go city by city, seeding the demand. And it's a very similar thing we did at Groupon, where we launched uh, city by city, first signing up a lot of the merchants in a particular city, and then starting to send out the deal of the day to our customers in that city, and really sort of building out a critical mass, which then starts to grow as, as the fire of demand, as the fire of the marketplace starts to spread. So very interesting challenges, very interesting learnings, very interesting approaches as you start to think about marketplace product management. Yeah, I think that's a, a really great articulation of the importance of market segmentation, especially early on. But one of the things to go back to this challenge of basically building out two businesses at once, right? Because there's these two sides and, and they need their own special considerations. How does one 
Please explain to us immediately how we can create success in marketplaces. Now, how does one focus on, is it moving both sides forward at the same time? Because, you know, this is the challenge of a marketplace. If you don't have enough of the vendors, then the customers don't want to be there because you haven't really created sufficient value. If you don't have enough customers saying we're here and ready to buy, then it becomes difficult to leverage vendors support. Is there a right sort of focus or how do you, would you go about that, you know, in a simplified explanation? I'd say you're exactly right that it's like building two businesses at the same time. And like any product management for a V1 product, for, for a nascent product, refining product market fit, you want to find a small segment of customers who love you and start with that, who are willing to take a chance on you, who you're able to build a relationship with, who you're going out of your way to do things that don't scale. So on the, on, I'd say from a marketplace perspective, you definitely want to start with supply. You want to find those early suppliers, uh, those early merchants who are willing to take a chance on you just because. Maybe you'll be wild and they'll, they'll be one of the first ones to benefit from your success. And really start to gather that small group of merchants, those, that small group of suppliers that starts to and, 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 uh, and work with them to build a really compelling value proposition. And then the same exact thing on the consumer side where you start to get to early adopters who want who are very attracted to that very small, very, very small group of, uh, of suppliers who are offering something very unique. So you really want to segment, segment, segment down to a powerful merchant value proposition that appeals to a very small segment of consumers. Make that work really, really well. And if you can get that flywheel spinning, you can then expand out to other markets, other verticals, other segments. There's this other theme emerging, which is this starting with why. And, and it relates to empathy, which is something that we talk a lot about on the show. But I think you've used this term value proposition a number of times. And I think as you just framed it there, getting down to what is going to motivate this person. So if you look at it abstractly, like I framed the argument, like why would vendors want to be in this marketplace when no one's on it? You're still kind of looking at it, I think, from 39,000 feet of above. You have to almost zoom in and say, well, why would Neiman Marcus at this time and stage in their business and what unique challenges are facing them you almost have to kind of go person by person or, or segment by segment in a way and just like get really into hey what's gonna motivate you here that's exactly right as, as i mentioned before organisms are basically learning organizations right and the reason you bring in the consumers the customers in for the qualitative feedback is so that you can start to almost hear what they're saying and hear what's behind what they're saying to find that you know, deep unmet need, whether they know they have it or not. And then use that as your why to start to build that customer by customer uh, a sense of what's possible and what solutions will help that unmet need. And um, a, a, a customer base is only really a collection of individual customers. And so you need to find a need that's deep enough that you can start to play with and, and, and provide a solution for that you, in some ways, hope is wide enough that you'll be able to get that to be a, a mass market product. But at the end of the day, all your customers are individuals with their own hopes and dreams and desires and life situations. And you want to be able to, so if you can solve it for one person, then for a hundred, then for a thousand, then for a million, this is how you get from, this is how you really get to that mass market. Nothing appears immediately and, and works. You talked about uh, when you when you left Pelago or not left, but when you essentially transitioned from the Pelago startup environment to Groupon, you had a very specific idea of the impact that you wanted to make as part of your journey there. Do you have a new idea of the impact that you want to make either here at Shoprunner or just 
as a forward-looking statement for your own kind of long and, and colored career? I think I think every step in the journey has been is interestingly sort of taken off after the last one, right? So when I was at Microsoft, I remember writing a, a paper for Bill Gates Think Week. So Bill Gates goes off on a week every summer and just reads everything that comes into him from the company to inspire new ideas. And I wrote a paper back when MSN Messenger was a thing. I'm not sure if you guys remember MSN Messenger. I used it. <laughs> and I wrote up this thing of before the iPhone, how do you use the MSN phone, the, the, yeah, the Microsoft phones and potentially create a location-based service that where people could discover each other and find each other. And somehow, completely unrelated, end up at Pelago. And that theme was very resonant. Pelago was all about cons- the customer uh, experience. And when Groupon bought us, actually in 2011, it was all about location and location discovery, which worked really well with what Groupon was thinking about. And now at Shopper, I'm really, really excited, A, to build kind of a team that consolidates a lot of the lessons I've learned over, over the many years of product that, uh, that I've been doing product. And then taking this idea of a scaled value proposition and really working on optimizing this idea of free two-day shipping and what value we can get to customers. But at the same time, going back to my roots at Pelago, of what is that next value proposition? Is it about apparel and discovery? Is it about convenience? And and how do we start thinking about retail and revolutionizing what we do next in that space? Um, How do you provide a lot of our brands and retailers almost an alternative uh, where they can work with Amazon and with a different marketplace. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of ideas in place and I'm really excited to bring sort of both those experiences together, that V1, what is a new value prop and how do you scale and optimize an existing business? Yeah, and I mean, fashion, I think, is, fashion and retail is an exciting place to be playing in right now because with exception of what Amazon was doing in terms of discontinuous innovation many years ago, the industry as a whole was sort of slow to wake up. And, you know, most recently in the news, there's been a lot of talks about big retailers struggling. And I think it just speaks to everyone's got to start catching up. It's not just about the creativity of the industry, which is, of course, an important thread, but how do we leverage technology? Exactly. And I think so much of it is based on the idea of creativity. If you look at where Amazon has done really well, it's really on the massive selection and on, and on real, a real focus on costs. They haven't yet um, you know, made, made sort of major dents um, in sort of uh, luxury fashion, and they're definitely working in that space. And I think there's, there's a level of the experience there that's less about the transaction, about efficiency. Uh, it's really more about this idea of an emotional connection using uh, both your heart and your mind. Um, and I think that's a, that's a really wide open space in, in, in retail generally that, that I'm excited to, 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 to think about. And you know, the, more, the more we talk to people, the more we look at how bloggers are influencing fashion trends, you realize that, 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 that fashion and design and apparel aren't just about the purchase, they're really about a form of communication. Um, and so there's a really, really social angle to this idea of what, uh, of how people shop for and consume fashion. And so I think it's, it's a whole new area, there are new habits, new behaviors, and just really excited to explore the underlying needs of, and, and, and how technology is evolving, how people think about that space. We do a segment uh, called Get the Job, Learn the Job, Love the Job. It's about advice for folks up and coming. You spoke earlier in the conversation about a couple different paths that you can take if you want to get into product. So I want to sort of anchor it a little bit more and say, okay, you're a senior person. You've been a senior person for a long time. I'm new. I, I'm going by the title junior product manager, but that's just to give myself a title for I have no product management experience on my resume. I've got leverageable skills. How do I get hired by somebody like you? What are you looking for from me 
to get in the door. Yeah, from, from a product perspective, I'd say there, there's more than just the experiences you've had. There's sort of a mentality and a way of thinking about the world that's really, really important. And that's where, you know, when we talked about earlier, this idea of associating yourself with a product organization as a product specialist or someone who's helping product, um, it's really meaningful that you're thinking a lot about the whys, you're thinking a lot about impact, um, you're thinking a lot about consumers and customers, and you kind of have this sense of how do I pursue the hypotheses? And so I think, I think that mental models a really important first step um, in, 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 in making the right, uh, in having the right conversations and, and, and uh, providing the right feedback for being positioned to move into, into that pathway. And then beyond that, I think there are a couple of branches in the road that, that, that really matter. Um, I've benefited a lot from really going smaller, um, really getting to small companies where the problems are there for, for the taking as opposed to there being really, really clear organizations and silos that you have to fit into to approach, the, approach those problems. Because at, at smaller companies, it's easy to stretch across whatever isn't taken and take a hold of it and make an impact there, which then gives you that experience and that credibility when you then look for that next job for things you can say you've done exactly, even though they may not have been part of your direct job description. Right. Um, so I, th I think that's probably a pretty powerful area. So either go smaller or find opportunities in a lar larger organization to start to think about either data from an analytics perspective, consumer feedback from a, uh, uh, from a qualitative and quantitative perspective, um, and then thinking a lot about the business and the whys. I think those are different aspects that you can then start to parlay to, to move into, into a product role. One other, a fourth pillar, I think, is this idea of getting things done. So really thinking about project management um, and or backlog grooming, working with developers to shepherd requirements through. If you, is, is, yeah. So focusing, I think, any of those four areas and starting to build out accomplishments in that space will then at least set you apart as having one of the powers that you need from a product management perspective and a willingness to learn and start to pick up the other, other building blocks of the product profession. Right. Yeah, you're, you're hinting to this idea that I speak a lot about, which is that product management, above all else, is about thinking differently. And so given that that's conceptual, my next question for you is, where have you seen product managers struggle to succeed or really understand the job once they're in it because, you know, they did all the right, they followed your advice, they got in the door, and then they had to actually embrace this new way of thinking, assimilate that information. How can that be challenging? I think it's really easy as a product manager to forget some of the essentials and sort of fall back on the skills you know, depending on the direction you come in from. I've seen a lot of product managers sort of struggle to move. The product managers, I think, are wired to get things done sometimes, which is an amazing skill and an essential skill, and to ship product. And I think sometimes it's easy to get into the level of, of, of focusing only on the shipping as opposed to the direction. Um, and I think that's really what starts to separate, you know, product managers who are in the profession at, at, the, at the junior or intermediate levels from those who are more at the senior levels where you're less about just the execution and you're able to sort of manage the weird duality of needing to get things done, but also stepping back um, and thinking about the direction and where you want to be able to go. And you know, almost having that seemingly or feelingly impossible challenge of managing in the same mind this idea of we can do a lot of different things it's not a distraction to think about options and possibilities but we still have to you know uh, utilize the time and effort and resources we have in, in an efficient way to get the job done 
Um, so I think I think that's a really important and meaningful thing is is for 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 product managers to really kind of have that awareness of direction, going back to the consumer, challenge the status quo, and not just getting done what's being asked for or being a request taker and 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 being a machine of execution, but also one of vision and direction. Yeah, uh, Jason Marisman, one of the guests we had on the show, has this great term for it, which he calls telescoping. And he talks mm. about this need for a product manager to always sort of be moving between that that long-term, mid-term, and short-term, what am I doing right now? And, and I would echo your sentiment. I think people get stuck and usually they get stuck in tactical because that's where most of us start. We start at the tactical level, we graduate to strategic. I'm curious for somebody like yourself who has been in more director level positions now for a number of years, does that work in reverse where you can kind of get really comfortable in the direction part and get a little rusty in the get stuff done part? Yeah, I worry about that almost uh, almost every single day. Okay. <laughs> I guess there's a healthy paranoia, which which helps me at least try to stay away from that that trap. Yeah, I think that's absolutely possible. Where it becomes it becomes hard to visualize what it takes to get right back in the weeds of you know running a roadmap and a backlog and prioritizing and um, detailing the requirements for a story or viewing you know a UX and thinking really critically about what's going to make that right versus just overarching sweeping ideas and trying to throw that throw that out and expect them to get done right away. I think that's one of the reasons honestly that I have made a lot of the changes in my career gone from, gone from big to small to big to small because I'm actually really afraid of not being able to myself get things done and navigate an organization in the right way. Right. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting you point that out. because You're definitely... disrupting yourself, basically. <laughs> exactly. Kind of walking back right back into the next challenge of saying, what don't I know? Can I do it again? And seeing if I, if I really can. Yeah, that's awesome. What about what uh, makes you tick? Why do you love this job so much? It's the idea of creating. I mean, I did the technical, consul- the technical consulting you mentioned a while back. And it was just not for me. It was this idea of getting in, solving somebody else's problem and walking away. I am a builder by nature. I love being able to like create something, nurture it, see it like get its first legs, thrive, survive. And I almost want to have something that outlasts me. So maybe it's this, this word of leverage, right? I feel like I'm only I'm here for, for, for so long and I want to be able to create the clocks that sort of last outlast me. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's, it's, that's, that's really this underlying idea that keeps me going, this idea of leverage, of creating something that lasts. Do you have um, any recommended resources that you would like us to throw up on our website? We have um, at 100productmanagers.com slash resources, this growing list of recommends that all of our guests contribute to, blogs, podcasts, books. doesn't have to be product management specific, but just things you think, you have to read this, you have to know this, you have to get excited about this that you would like to share. I think for a lot of people starting off in product, I always point them over to Dan Olson's book, uh, The Lean Product Playbook. Okay. Um, he takes us a lot of the concepts, everything from crossing the chasm, outside in product management, lean product management, puts them together into a book that's less about just the ideas. He also you know, does his best to translate that into practical advice that you can take or not take. So I think that's a really great uh, starting starting guide. From there, I transition over to a lot of the uh, lean product management ideas um, with Ash Moria. He has a book called Running a Ski- uh, uh, running lean that's and scaling lean. and scaling lean and I love scaling lean. Um, there's a book I read a long time ago called The Goal by a, a, a gold rat, um, and it's just a really fun read around how he optimizes a factory floor and talks about optimizing the whole. And I remember light bulbs going off in my head, and I love how Ash takes scaling lean and applies 
the idea of the theory of constraints optimizing in the whole to the customer development journey. So how do you think about visitors as raw material entering your factory and the finished product being paid customers and how you take each of those stages and optimize them, but don't make each state, don't make each step as efficient as possible. Think about optimizing the whole. So I've loved both of those a ton. I think a couple of other quick resources, Nick Colenda, uh, does a really great job um, assembling a lot of psychological studies in, in a very actionable way. So everything from price perception, uh, color perception, how to how to make virality happen, and very practical guides. So his, he, he is an essential uh, resource for me. And then um, I recently came ac across this idea of the opportunity uh, solution tree um, from Teresa Torres at producttalk.org. Okay. Um, so those have been all, all really great things that just jump up to mind as. If you're doing products, at least understand these. Hopefully you've come across them before, but if you haven't, they'll be just great tools in your toolbox. Wow, those are all awesome recommends. Thank you. Last question for you. Is there a personal or professional mantra, side of the mug quote, poster on the wall kind of sentiment that you use either to guide yourself per personally or professionally or both that you want to leave us with? What I think is interesting is I have less quotes than sort of a couple of images in mind. Uh, so one is I've always had this like idea of like heartbeat and a circulatory system. And I think about myself as, as wanting to be that for an organization that, that I'm a part of. Um, so really providing and radiating, radiating a lot of that context, getting information, kind of bringing it back and kind of being that idea of this, of this, of this, uh, of the central, the central circulatory system, making sure all the different parts of the organization have the energy and oxygen they need so they can do the right thing for the good of the overall organization. Uh, and then another is probably this idea of almost kind of, you know, a, a plane landing where you have the idea matching reality and you want to make sure that you bring those into contact as soon as possible so that you can sort of submit them to being the right landing, the softest landing you can get to. Right. How grounded of you. <laughs> Shafiq, thank you so much for being on the show. We're so richer for having heard all of your insights. Really appreciate it. It's great to meet you. Yeah, thanks, Suzanne. It's been a lot of fun. Great conversation. Thank you for listening to 100 PM, the official podcast for 100productmanagers.com. If you enjoyed the show, please help us get discovered by leaving a five-star rating and review right from your podcast app. Our mission is to help you excel at product management. If you haven't been to our site, please check it out. We have so many great free resources to help you on your path, including all of the recommendations from our fabulous guests week over week. I'm your host, Susanna Bate. We'll be back next week with an all new episode. 